Welcome to the podcast, Risk is the New Kale. Each episode, I talk with folks who have figured out how to extract opportunity from risk. As someone who has spent a career controlling risk, I want to know those who embrace it. Risk is the new kale. Good for you. Hard to take. This interview's with Bill Yearwood, and the theme is what can complex air accident investigations teach us about our own sense of safety? Bill has been quoted in the media so many times that his voice became synonymous with public reassurance. People just wanted to know that someone got to the bottom of an accident so that it would never happen again. I've known him for many years. We share this drive to understand complexity and also this sense of responsibility that communicating the outcomes of an investigation is a huge responsibility because you actually want to change people's minds about what it does to be safe and to control risk. I know no one with more integrity than Bill Yearwood. He's the award-winning former manager of Regional Operations Pacific for the Transportation Safety Board Aviation Accident Investigations. He's a pilot and a road racer. He's the author of Getting It, Learning from Aviation Accident Investigations, published in 2021. I'm pleased to be speaking with Bill Yearwood, and welcome, Bill, to the podcast, Risk is the New Kale. Happy to be on this, and uh, look forward to, to hearing more of what you've got to put out. Now, you've been the lead investigator for numerous complex air accident investigations, and you enjoy helicopter flying, so it's fair to say you're good at self-management of risk. Well, I like to think that that's, that's what it's all about. You know, risk, uh, um, risk management safety is all about, about um, anticipating and managing. Exactly, exactly. And one of the uh, things I really enjoyed in your book, Bill, and I love the title, getting it. Um, You say that we have to assume that designers, manufacturers, maintainers, operations managers, and pilots did not intend the accident to occur. And it's kind of hard to understand how far we humans can go past the signs of danger. So tell me a bit more about that. Well, to start with, I, um, I have to remind people that the word accident means that it wasn't intentional. If we were to, to think that they thought um, or knew that this would happen, then, you know, it's a police matter, it's criminal, you know, to let it happen. So, so as investigators and, and rational people, we, we know that, that uh, nobody wants uh, their equipment or their operation to hurt other people. And we can talk more about that in the end. But uh, the um, uh, so, how we go past so many uh, signals of danger uh, um, is a lot about uh, our need to complete a task. Uh, most of us, when we take on a task. We want to see it completed. We, we, um, 
And, and sometimes I call that operational momentum. That's a great expression. I use the space shuttle accident as a classic example of not just signals, but experts saying, don't do this. Um, you know, that we're not tested for this, etc. And they went ahead anyway. So, so I'm guilty of it, you know, and I know <clears throat> that a lot of us are guilty of trying to complete a task, job, whatever, um, once we get started. Now that is such an interesting point around this need to finish, um, almost put parentheses around something once you've started it. And I'm wondering whether, you know, even as part of our education, there's something missing around the ability to pause and let something be open-ended for whatever kind of external thing comes up and just to kind of let something end and do a pause because you're right, I think we are all sort of driven to be task completers. And so we're putting our heads down and maybe not noticing when we actually should stop. Because because I know that is a trait of mine and many, I um, try to get the, the uh, decisions of stopping done before I start. In other words, put in, I'm not going unless this, and and stick with those, and and even uh, if I get to here, and I can't see this or do this, I got to turn around because I know that once I get started, even even just getting to the airport for me is hard to sit to turn around and say, you know what, it's not good enough to go. You're almost injecting your own safety gates in by thinking through those those pause points. Yeah, that's neat. Yeah, and I've talked about that, about what's human, what's in my nature, and and look out for that. What's and and when we when we talk about risk, it's subjective and everybody has different tolerance and and our tolerance changes um, very quickly based on the circumstances and and we can easily find an excuse why we can go you know another 10 feet or another 10 miles before we turn around and and that might be the the gap you needed to turn around so i i just want to take you back to your childhood um and because i'm curious about how you've learned this um because you certainly embody that and I, I know that you grew up on a sugar estate in Guyana. And as a kid, you swam in waters that had piranha in them. You had to watch out for alligators and constrictors. So that must have been quite a childhood. I'm probably, it was amazing. Um, how do you think that influenced your choices and your thinking later in life? Well, I think it did a lot. It's, it makes one realize that, that you have to look after yourself. An early age, um, it was kind of forced on me to stay alive, really, in, in those conditions, to manage risk. So what do you do uh, to avoid being bitten by a piranha in water that had piranha? You know, and you learn from little stories from other people, and, and you do it, you know, 
you go in splashing like crazy and get out no sort of sitting around and wiggling your toe or something like that because it'll be gone oh okay that's that's the secret so you've got to scare them off yeah. they're not thinking that you're actually something they can nibble on yeah so wow. it's the opposite of fishing you know it's good <laughs> and and then and then just having your your eyes open um uh, to to see what's what's around and uh, etc so we're uh uh, some of those things, you know, even when I was an instructor, I, I uh, could tell students that were easier to train on a helicopter uh, because of their background. If they showed up on a motorcycle or we knew they worked a tractor or backhoe on a farm, I, I knew that they, they had some basics to, to um, help them with three-dimensional uh, control. And in my case, um, I had some of that too, but but I had some basics to help me with risk management. Okay, that's fascinating. Now, um, when I met you many years ago, it was at an aviation leadership conference, and you were standing next to the widow of a man who had drowned after a float plane accident. I was extremely moved by your dedication to this person, and like all spouses of accidents, she wanted to make sure that what her husband went through never happened to anyone else. That if anything comes from something so horrible, it's learning and correction. Want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, um, unfortunately, there's a, there's a few of those like that where, where I end up um, uh, talking to the loved ones of people who've lost their lives in accidents. And... Um, Sometimes, uh, well, not sometimes, but every time, as an investigator, you get to see some things that that are you'll never forget. You can see uh, images of uh, those persons' struggle to survive or to to avoid the the tragedy they went through, um, uh, and when that happens. Um, we don't we don't share that openly, even among ourselves. We get we get help to um, counseling because we know that it's that it has an effect on us. Um, but it sticks with you forever, and any time you uh, see or come across that uh, trap that caused that loss it's vivid and and you you can't leave it alone you get up on your soapbox and start talking about what needs to be done again yeah so it's it's a must you know caring for the people that are left and and all the people who've experienced that and the the, the best care is to to try and make sure it doesn't happen again i can see that's deeply affected you for sure Let's go to a, a different question that maybe reflects risk as the new kale, good for you, hard to take. What are good risks? So how can we evolve without taking risk as a society? Well, we can't. We, we have to take risk. But it's interesting to, to answer that question about what's good risk. And I mean, the simple answer is, uh, is uh, you know, prob high probability of, of success or 
uh, low chance of failure. You know, that, that, that's simple and that, that is quick. That's what we do, you know, it's, it's pretty easy there. Um, but um, to say what is good risk is um, a little more difficult. I mean, it's good to go out for a walk and exercise, but there's a risk of, of getting run over by a car. But there's a bigger risk if you stay at home on the couch and, and you know, turn into boneless chicken, you know, it's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, it's uh, uh, you have to, to look at it that way. And, and really, what um, improves a species is good risk management. You know, so the word risk itself is, is uh, it's the stimulus for the improvement. And we can simply say, use an example of, of uh, wanting to come in across a creek and needing to jump over it. Now you have to assess, well, is it possible at all? And yeah, how far back do I have to run to get up to the speed I need to be so that I cross the water before gravity takes over. If you do it and you succeed, you have enhanced or your, your judgment, you know, or confirmed your judgment. If you fall in the water and you have to run and do it again, you have um, enhanced your fitness and your judgment. Failure isn't bad either, you know, in, in those small cases. There, it's part of, of uh, improving the species. Mm. Because if, if you can see that it's possible, then getting through that hurdle, risk, challenge improves the species. Absolutely. And of course, you know, we, we measure safety by hazard identification and, and assessing the risk or managing it. But hazard identification is also, what can we do to identify the hazards? Sometimes we can't identify the hazards in our natural life. And you can use maybe cancer as an example. Um, being able to identify it early can allow the species to live longer. And so the identification of the hazard and then learning how to, how to um, manage that risk or get over the hurdle it's fascinating for me to dig deep into to what we're doing all the time to improve the species, to enjoy our life. I wouldn't mind coming back to that point later in terms of the way that you think, even as you drive to the airport to think about uh, getting in your aircraft and, and heading out, and the way that you're pre-thinking through the hazards. Um, that seems to be a recurring theme in the way that you actually prepare yourself for that great experience. So we'll come back to that. As a helicopter pilot, a former car racer, and now a road cycling racer, uh, you've said that we need a certain amount of risk to keep the species fit. But how do you how do you reconcile all of those things? I think almost testing yourself in a way around setting up the conditions for something to be amazing and create opportunity through that. Well, I guess, you know, people say, well, you do all these risky things. 
No, I, I live in a, a risky or hazardous environment and I get some joy and pride out of managing it. So how do I do that? And it's really visualizing the task, the race, the flight, you know, what do I have to do? Okay, walk us through that. You're walking up to this bike that's probably worth more than most people's vehicles and um, it's an amazing road racer. Um, I'm sure you have a number of them, but I'm just picturing one that's probably hanging in your garage. Um, do you start that process before you walk up to the bike or are you, you know, how do you do that preparation for say a, a cycling race with a team? Well, the preparation starts with your own fitness <laughs> training and practice, but then there's, as you get closer, you, um, it's interesting people say, oh, that's a tough course. Well, the course is really, it's the competition that makes it hard because you can get around the course. It might be uh, slow. There's no, no uh, problem with getting around the course. It's if you're going to be able to get around the course as fast as everybody else or faster. Um, so then you have to visualize, okay, this, this hill here, I, this is going to hurt me because I'm a heavy guy compared to those guys. I have to be on the front when we get to this hill so that when we get to the top, I'm still in touch with the pack because if they go over the top without me, I don't have their draft to get back in the pack. So, so I have to visualize the whole course and where I need to be at every step of the way. And, you know, so that's a bike race. And I also know that, um, that if I can get to the last lap, I have uh, strength to finish well. You can beat me up to like, feel like I can't, do another lap but if i'm on that last lap hmm. and i get i can i can win i can sprint most anybody and and that carries over to to um flying and i visualize it you know here's where we're going to go this is where we're going to do uh what's the weather today will i be able to fly at this altitude yes okay i can't fly at that altitude i might have to go around this this mountain even to the extent from a safety perspective, what if we get stuck out here? You know, even if we just land and uh, have a picnic and, and we go back and the aircraft won't start, how much time am I giving rescuers or responders to get to me before dark? And if I get stuck here at night in the dark, in the cold, am I wearing what I need to get through that? So you visualize yourself saying, oh, I wish I had done this, or I wish I had brought this, or I wish I had done that. You never want to say, I should have, you know, don't you should on me. I, you know. I have a lot of connection to that, just how you describe that in the different businesses that I've been in and raising the discussion of risks, which there is a bias for optimism with a lot of executive teams. And it makes them uncomfortable to do exactly what you said is important, which is Put yourself in the position that it didn't work. Now, what are you going to do? They see that as sort of preparing for the worst, but I think it's preparing for the best. And the other thing that I see, which is very common, is that people believe risks are discrete as opposed to linked. And often something will happen, but it's on top of something else. I mean, we're certainly seeing that in the, in the global environment. It's one thing after another. 
And I'm not sure people really even understand how important it is to do the mental gymnastics about that kind of linking. Yeah, and uh, sometimes we don't want to know. We don't even want to think about that. And I have um, pilot friends that don't want to come and see the wreckage, don't want to hear much about about it uh, because it affects their, I guess what they're hanging on to is their invulnerability. Is there some superstition, do you think, in the industry as well about that? There is um, a lot of superstition in sports and risky sports, but uh, you can't wear your lucky shorts every day. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, being in the helicopter with you as the pilot. You um, you made sure that we both had our helmets on. We had uh, life jackets on, as I recall, because we were flying over water. There was just this sense that we were going to incorporate all the tools to manage all the hazards that we could. And I just have so much respect for that discipline because, as you say, it is a profession. And. And I always say, if you're if you're uh, prepared, the superstition is you're not likely to need it. One of the chapters in your book <laughs> is titled "Gaps in Risk Assessment," and you talk about life limits on critical components, basically capping how long a system critical part of what flies a plane can be allowed to work before it's replaced. Um, and there's some reflection in your book too that there's in some parts, an industry culture to stretch these times out? Well, it's, it's um, not just the aviation industry. It shows up here because of the extra um, limits we put on things. You know, the brakes on your car are crucial and, and uh, we don't actually put a time limit on it. We just wait till it starts squealing. But that costs money. And whether it's in aviation or, or driving your car, things that cost money and take time are um, often looked at as, how can we make this stretch this longer? How can we um, avoid having to do this? And the airline industry was able to uh, run pretty much everything on, on those big airliners on condition. And it's based on the fact that they have so much redundancy and they have so much uh, ongoing monitoring of, of the, the um, components. So they can, they can, can justify this and they, they put on so many hours, so many flights that, um, that they've been able to to slowly prove to the regulator that this unconditioned thing works. But really it is run it till it fails. What has happened in the industry is then that the lesser airlines, smaller equipment say, hey, we want this too. And the smaller equipment may not have the redundancy and the, the um, uh, sophisticated maintenance oversight to do all of the monitoring. It doesn't scale, is what you're saying. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, that's where, where it's risky. And, and then the, the, the designers might not have 
had any idea that you were going to do this to their aircraft. So they built an aircraft for a certain purpose and over the years uh, they've changed. They're no longer uh, just hauling people, now they're fighting fires. And, uh, and so their landing and takeoffs are more frequent. And they calculated the failure rates based on an assumption that you're not going to land every two minutes. You're going to fly for 20 minutes at least before you land. And it doesn't apply in certain environments. Uh, and sadly, we find out the hard way when it, it breaks. Uh, learning from manufacturers and certification bodies and how they, they come up with these numbers and how do they why they put in alarms, etc., is uh, eye-opening, and, and uh, many um, pilots and engineers don't get to see that in the background, and they might push the limits because they don't appreciate it. Bill, I'm curious about what role regulators have in setting acceptable risk tolerance standards for the public safety. Uh, rules and following standard operating procedures are important because they set out the gates for preventing accidents, but what if the rules themselves are too lax or need to be updated? Um, we just sort of talked about some learnings from the way people are maintaining aircraft, but where does the regulator's role come into that in certification of aircraft? Well, they play a very important role. Um, every rule is written in somebody's blood and um, and the rule is a basic minimum because um, as soon as it it's put forward it's ground down everybody wants to to make it as simple and l uh, the least um, problematic for the industry to deal with. So um, we have to look, at, think of that and say, what is the intent? And can I do better? Do I understand it? You, the, and if you take a simple example that everybody understands, there's a rule, there's a speed limit. And, um, but it's based on, on uh, the road being dry, the average performance of an automobile or vehicle, the average capability of the driver, the visibility, all of those things are so average. And any one of those things can change where that speed limit should be. Um, it'll be easier in the future when we take the human out of, out of the vehicles and the vehicles talk to each other and the, the car knows I've got this much traction and I've got this much space and I can turn or stop within that. So it's talking to the other car and they space themselves and go at the speeds that, that they, can, they can handle. Well, just to, just to interject there, do you think that people will accept self-driving cars before they'll accept self-driving aircraft? I, I think so, but it's not... A, a rational choice because it's a lot easier to make a self-driving aircraft than a self-driving car. The, the, the aircraft are out there 
with less obstacles flying on rails. So the aircraft are like trains. And, um, and the, it's just that we can't see the rails that they're on. And it's interesting that we, we accepted first elevators without drivers. And it took us a while to accept trains without drivers. But really, the train is an elevator on a horizontal plane that's less risky than an elevator that's on a vertical plane. So it's just a matter of distance that how far are you going to go in this? So, so the elevator, well, we went two floors, that's not too bad, you know, and except that time. Um, the aircraft is going to be a little harder um, to, to do because it goes such a long way. I'm in here by myself or without a, a pilot looking after me for a longer time. The car uh, will get there because as we age uh, and we, you know, medical professionals, you can't drive anymore. It takes away that independence. But, but when they throw a car in front of you and say, hey, it'll do it for you. You can still go where you want to go by just telling it where to go. We'll accept that. Mm. that that's my, my thought anyway. And the thing is, we're getting there slowly. But now they put on the brakes for you if, if you forget or you don't look. Um, so they're, they're allowing us to be driving as less competent individuals. And regulators, when they think about those sorts of things, and we were talking about safety rules before, what, what would you say is the primary responsibility um, with regulators, not just in the performance of aircraft, but in a transitional economy such as moving to self-driving cars? What would you expect them to be doing or asking in terms of society's risk tolerance or its safety standards? To embrace it. You know, unfortunately, um, if I have to say it, the bureaucrats get comfortable in what they're doing and change is not welcome. So getting them to say, this would be great, seeing the vision of how much it can help. And a, a simple example is, is um, uh, rear view mirrors. Why do we have rear view mirrors on cars when cameras are so much better? They don't have blind spots. You can put the image right in front of you. You don't have to look away from in front of you to look in the, to see what's behind you. you know, but the car manufacturers are having a real hard time getting the, the regulators to, to adapt that or to change that. Um, uh, I guess it's a tombstone regulation. This is the basics. Every car has to have a rear view mirror. And, and uh, getting around that is, is difficult. But, That's a uh, great example, just a useless piece of hardware now, basically. Yeah. And, and so uh, it's coming, but it's been so slow. That f flows into aviation, too, with the uh, tragedy of Boeing's aircraft. 